This week on The Anxious Truth, we're going to look at how a therapist becomes a therapist and what I've gone through for the past two years or so on the way to becoming a therapist myself. So let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Anxious Truth. This is episode number 279 of this podcast. We are recording in November of 2023. In case you are listening from the future, I am Drew Linsalata, creator and host of The Anxious Truth. This is the podcast that covers all things anxiety, anxiety disorders, and anxiety recovery. So if you are struggling with things like panic attacks, panic disorder, agoraphobia, health anxiety, or OCD, this is the place for you. If you've just stumbled upon the podcast or the YouTube channel today, welcome. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you find it helpful in some way, shape, or form. Of course, if you are a returning listener or viewer, welcome back. I'm glad that you're here. I hope you find today's episode helpful or informative in some way. Today, we're going to talk about how a therapist becomes a therapist. Now, I am in the process of becoming a therapist myself. I'm in the second year, sort of nearing the end of my graduate program en route to being a licensed therapist in the U.S., in the state of New York. So keep in mind that that's where I am. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is geared toward U.S. law and New York law specifically. But if you're in the U.S., it's going to be applicable pretty much anywhere you are. If you're in other countries, unfortunately, I can't necessarily speak to that. I'm somewhat familiar with what happens in the UK because I do a lot of work with people in the UK, but I'm going to be addressing an American perspective today. So keep that in mind as you listen. And before we get started, uh, I want to just remind everybody that The Anxious Truth is certainly more than just this podcast episode or this YouTube video. There are 278 other videos and podcast episodes that came before it. There are books that I've written on anxiety and anxiety disorders. There are courses and workshops that I offer on anxiety and anxiety recovery. There's a ton of free social media content. There's a second podcast called Disordered that I do with Josh Fletcher, and all of those resources, which I think are helpful because people tell me they are, can be found on my website at theanxioustruth.com. So when you get a chance, go check all of that out. You may find all, some, or none of it helpful, but it's worth checking out. So head on over to theanxioustruth.com and see what's there. There's a lot of good stuff. So today we're going to talk about how a therapist, at least in the U.S., becomes a therapist, because there's two reasons for this episode. Number one, you guys are nice enough and interested enough to ask me quite often what my experience is as I go through graduate school and become a licensed therapist. I appreciate that support. Everybody's been very supportive of this project that I've done for almost two years of my life now, and I'm not done yet. And there's also often a lot of confusion or a need for information when people are looking to hire a therapist. They're trying to find a therapist to help them with an anxiety problem, and they're confronted with a wide array of letters and credentials and types of therapy and types of therapists, and they get confused. So I might be able to clarify some of this today. Again, at least if you live in the U.S. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the different types of therapists that you can encounter as you are out there searching for professional help. Now, in my case, I am going through a master's degree program in something called clinical mental health counseling. That means that I will wind up as a licensed mental health counselor. You may see the, uh, the letters LMHC after somebody's name. That's somebody who has at least a master's degree, who has trained in clinical mental health counseling, and can call themselves, if they are licensed in their particular U.S. state, they can call themselves a therapist, which is where I will be. You may also find that person calling themselves LPC, licensed professional counselor. And honestly, there's no difference. It just depends on what state of the union they're in, because some states say LPC, some states say licensed counselor, some states say 
licensed mental health counselor. They're all the same in a way. So those are people who've gone through programs like mine. There are people who are LMFT, that's licensed marriage and family therapist. LMFTs are very similar. They go through a different type of schooling, which cover a lot of the same things, but may have a little bit more of a bent toward family systems theory and family counseling and therapy. But LMFTs are also qualified licensed therapists. So when you hear the word therapist, psychotherapist, counselor, mental health counselor, those are generally interchangeable. So keep that in mind as we go. You may also find somebody who is a, a social worker, a clinical social worker. Some social workers specialize in their training and in their degree program in mental health issues. Now, social workers have a little bit of a wider uh, view of the world that might be a little bit more, again, socially, societally, uh, contextually oriented, if you will. But social workers have been operating as mental health counselors and therapists for many, many years here in the States and in, I think, almost every U.S. state. So you may encounter somebody who is a licensed clinical social worker who could call themselves a therapist or a psychotherapist who may be qualified, experienced, and able to help you. Aside from those three master's level therapists, so all of us have gone through a master's degree, which means four years of an undergraduate degree, like a bachelor's degree, and then usually two and a half to three years of graduate training to get a master's program, a master's degree. And then that leads to licensure in the state that you are going to practice in. Now, when you wind up licensed, the state that you are going to practice in will tell you what the minimum requirements are that you have to meet. And in terms of education, we're going to get to experience in a bit. But in terms of edu education, most states will say that before you can be licensed and call yourself LPC or LMHC or L. LISW or whatever you're going to call yourself based on your training and your and your targeted credential, if you will, or license, you have to say that you have to show that you have been through a graduate program that not only meets some minimum requirements that the state has probably delineated, but is also accredited by an accrediting body that that state recognizes. So for instance, for my program in clinical mental health counseling, generally speaking, states will require that if you are going to be licensed as LMHC or LPC, you have to have gone through a graduate program that is accredited by KCREP, C-A-C-R-E-P. That just happens to be our accrediting body. And a state will do that because it offers some assurance to the licensing body and to the state legislature that decides how they want to license mental health professionals in their particular state. It offers some assurance that people are meeting a minimum standard of education that will serve the residents of that state well. Be safe, be effective, uh, be ethical, be well-trained. So a therapist that holds one of those licenses, whether it's LMHC, LPC, LMFT, a social worker license, has probably gone through a master's program that is accredited by some accrediting body that maintains minimum standards for education and training. There's also an experience part of that. So I have been in my program now for about two years, a couple of months shy of two years. The total program takes about 30 months, 31, 32 months. I don't know the exact thing, but all of it up to this point has been coursework. And so we spend a whole lot of time on coursework. We're learning theories. We're learning personality development theories. We're learning theories of counseling and therapy. We're learning about ethics and legal issues. We're learning about research methods. We're learning about all kinds of different things. We're learning about how to conduct 
group therapy and group counseling. We're learning about different multicultural issues. There's a ton of coursework to do. So those of you who follow along with me on social media have heard me complain very regularly that I am just tired of reading textbooks and writing papers and proving to people that I do need to prove myself to that I understand this material and I am learning the things that I have to learn to be an effective, safe, ethically practicing therapist who is practicing from some empirically validated theoretical point of view. So there's a reason why we go through that sort of coursework. I can speak directly to the LPCs and the LMHCs because that's the program I'm going to going through, but I am reasonably certain that the social workers and the LMFTs have very similar training. They have to do the same thing. When you are done with your coursework, now, the coursework does include practical work. That is the simulated counseling or therapy that is done in a role playing type scenario where you are working and practice working on therapy skills, learning and practicing therapy skills with your classmates, other members of your cohort in the program, you are being instructed and supervised and and uh, molded, criticized, helped by members of the faculty who are all at the doctoral level, right? So there's nobody teaching us that has only a master's degree, they've all gone through and got a PhD or a PsyD or an EdD. I'll tell you about that later. Uh, so they have been helping us build those skills in that environment. When you are done with the coursework requirement, which has been extensive, now you move into clinical work. That's what I'm about to start. And in your clinical work, you are doing a minimum of probably six or eight months of supervised practice in the field. You are essentially an intern. You are working under supervision with clients and the accrediting bodies will say you have to have X amount of hours doing this and that and making sure that you are being exposed to the different aspects of clinical practice that your supervisor is actually becoming a teacher for you, mentoring you, working with you, criticizing, not criticizing, but critiquing your work, helping you out, making sure that you're progressing along the path. And you not only have a field supervisor, the person that I will be working under at the practice that I will be working at here in New York, starting in February of 2024. Uh, but you also working with a faculty supervisor, who is also acting as a clinical supervisor. So they want to see your notes, they want to see, you know, recordings of your sessions, they're going to work with you also to teach you and critique you and make sure that you are progressing in your skill set and understanding how to actually do this thing, because it's important. So there is a tremendous amount of not only theoretical and coursework to do, but there's also quite a bit of practical work to do. Those of us who wind up as a master's level therapist will generally go through somewhere between five and 800 hours of supervised practical work before we even get that master's degree. Until I get that degree, until I finish this program next October, and I am granted that degree, I'm qualified to do nothing. Yes, I'll be practicing under supervision as part of the degree. But until I get the degree, I cannot practice. I cannot practice after that. And I certainly cannot be licensed to practice on my own. So keep that in mind. That's sort of the educational requirement. For people who have master's level degrees, like I will have LPC, LMHC, LMFT, licensed clinical social worker, whichever of us, we are also going to post degree have to do anywhere from depends on the state that you're in, anywhere from 1500 hours to three to 4000 hours 
of supervised work where you are practicing and you are legally a therapist, but you are practicing as either an intern or under what's called a limited permit. You cannot practice without supervision. You must practice under somebody who themselves is fully licensed and in most states has actually undergone additional training and is qualified to provide clinical supervision. So there, at least in the US, when you are looking for a therapist who is a master's level therapist and presents with, again, those letters, LPC, LMFT, LMHC, LISW, LI licensed clinical social work, LCW, there's a ton of different, right? So a master's level therapist has gone through a lot of academic training. They've gone through a lot of skills training as part of that academic process. And they've gone through a ton of real world in the field, supervised, practical, clinical practice and training and experience and critique and learning. And that's how you wind up in a situation where you can practice on your own. <clears throat> Excuse me, when I am done with this process, then I can take a national qualifying exam. There are two different exams, at least for LPCs and LMHCs. You pick the one that your state uses. They're both, you know, they're both national qualifying exams, but states pick individual ones. If I pass that exam and I have my all my academic credentials in order and I have my 3000 hours in New York, it's 3000 hours of clinically supervised work post graduation, then I can call myself LM, LMHC and I can practice on my own privately without supervision. However, every working therapist has a supervisor. Whether I own my own practice, I'm practicing individually, I will have a clinical supervisor. That's part of what it takes. This is one of the things that we are taught that is drilled into us. The practical use of supervision that helps you stay on the straight and narrow, helps you see your blind spots, keeps your clients safe. So no matter who you're talking to, a therapist, even that practices on their own, that owns their own practice, has a supervisor of some kind, a person that they are probably paying. If I am an individual practice practitioner and I own my own practice and I am an, an individual clinician, I will pay somebody, hopefully somebody more experienced than me, who I trust, who I know I can trust to keep help me keep my clients safe to be my clinical supervisor. And I will consult with that person on a regular basis to make sure that I'm doing the right job. It's important to have somebody looking over your shoulder and kind of giving you, you know, the heads up if things are going a little bit awry. So that's also part of the training process. We learn about supervision, we learn about how to use supervision, and we learn why it's important in the process. So that's what it takes. And that's what I have been going through to become a master's level therapist in most US states, again, with some variations. And again, if you're in another country, I would love to be able to tell you what this is. It may be similar, I don't know but I can't necessarily speak to that. So let's talk about other types of therapists because you will find two major other types of therapists, or I'm going to say mental health helpers. There are psychologists or clinical psychologists. I will give you New York again as an example because it's a state that I live in. In New York, you cannot call yourself a psychologist or a clinical psychologist or a licensed psychologist unless you have a doctoral level degree, which is either a PhD or a PsyD, PSY.D, which is just a, a different type of doctoral degree for psychologists, and you have passed an exam and you have gone through clinical training, that the difference between a master's level therapist and a doctoral level therapist is essentially one is a little bit more practically based. 
that's us, the master's level therapist, whereas the doctoral level psychologists tend to be much more research based in their training. And they admittedly have gone through a much more rigorous academic process, for sure. I take nothing away. And I have full respect for anybody who goes the whole way and winds up getting a doctoral level degree in clinical psychology. It is no joke. They've probably performed a reasonable amount of research as part of that because most PhD programs are research based. PsyD is a little bit different, but PsyD also has a research component. They're a little bit more practically based, which is sort of a new thing in the last, say, 25 or 30 years. But when you talk to somebody who identifies as a psychologist or a licensed psychologist, they have gone through a doctoral program and achieved that, that degree, and they are credentialed that way. The other type of mental health helper, and there are some adjuncts to this we'll talk about for, for a minute, is a psychiatrist. Now, it's important to recognize that whether you're dealing with a master's level therapist, like I will be, or you're dealing with a doctoral level psychologist, there are no medications involved. None of us at, at, that level, at those levels can prescribe or manage medications. It's not allowed. It's outside of our competency. It's not something I would even begin to think about because I have no formal training in that. Medication is the realm of the psychiatrists. Now, is that all a psychiatrist does? No, not necessarily. A psychiatrist can also be a therapist. That's true. But a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. So a psychiatrist has gone to med school like any other doctor, like a cardiologist or a urologist or a gastroenterologist or an orthopedist. He, a, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who has decided to specialize in the practice of psychiatry and has undergone additional advanced tra treatment uh, training in psychiatry. A psychiatrist can provide medication, can prescribe medication, and can work on medication management with you. That is a huge difference. If you are using medication, you will need a medical doctor involved to help you manage those things and to manage your prescriptions and make sure that you are staying safe and that things are working or not working. I'm not here to open a debate about medication or to talk about those issues. We all have a lot of opinions on those, but it's important to recognize that only a psychiatrist or a MD, a medical doctor, can be involved in that. Now, there are adjuncts because there are psychiatric nurse practitioners, at least here in the States. That is not a person who has gone all the way and, and gotten that medical degree, but somebody who does have medical training, who works under the supervision of an MD, of a licensed physician, who has specialized in psychiatric care also. So there are, you know, nurse practitioners or psychiatric nurse practitioners that get involved in that too. They are, they have undergone advanced training. They are medical professionals. They work under the license of a physician. So those are the different types of helpers that you will encounter when you start to go and look for a therapist, a counselor, a psychiatrist, if you will. You may get a medical doctor, right? That's a psychiatrist who may be primarily involved in treating you medically and worrying about your prescriptions and managing that and keeping you safe. You may find a clinical psychologist who is a doctoral level practitioner, and you may find somebody like an LMHC or an LPC or an LMFT. Is there a difference? Now, this can be debatable, I'm sure. If you have gone through five years of additional academic rigor and earned yourself a PhD, you have my undying respect. It is no joke. It is not a thing I would ever even consider doing because it's just a long time and a lot of commitment. Is there an additional level there? Yeah, I might say that there is. That person has clearly undergone more training, has been involved in more research. There's no doubt about that. 
But it is difficult to say if only a psychologist is okay for you. Many of the people that if you follow along with me on social media, that you see me work with, and if you go to say an IOCDF conference, you're going to find a ton of very highly respected, well regarded, excellent, amazingly trained, well experienced clinicians who are at the master's level, who have tremendous track record of positive outcomes with clients. So it's very important to recognize that professional infighting aside, and we all understand that that stuff happens. And I take nothing away from the medical doctors and the psychologists. I admire all of them. And we would all hopefully work together. I'll get to that in a second. But you can't automatically say, well, somebody with a master's degree is worse than somebody with a doctoral degree or a medical degree. It depends on the context. For example, I will give you maybe this helps you in terms of clarification. I am trained in assessment tools, use of testing and assessment to help in diagnosis. But there are assessment tools that I will not be able to legally use, because they do require somebody who has spent a lot of extra time in school, and has, has a lot of specialized training in psychometrics, who can only use some of those assessment tools. So for instance, I would not use the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, I can't use it because I'm a master's level professional and I cannot use that. That is indicated for use only by a doctoral level professional who has undergone specific training. This is where you start to work together. So there are a lot of instances where one therapist will refer to another to perform services like testing or assessment or evaluation that either is outside of the bounds of just my experience or my core competency because we can't be experts in everything and that person does that. So I might refer out to that person and get them involved for help. There are a lot of practices that are popping up, many of which are in my area, and it's very encouraging, where there are master's level therapists, clinical psychologists, uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners, and psychiatrists all working together in the same practice. That's awesome. That's great. Because you get the benefit of a whole team that can do a lot of different things that each one individually might not necessarily do. So keep those things in mind. And then there's the whole, are you trained or specialized in treating anxiety disorders? Well, whether you are a, you know, an LM, uh, LMFT, an LMHC, a PhD, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, that's going to depend. You cannot automatically assume that anybody with any letters after their name has spent any time learning about the mechanics of anxiety disorders. And if you're listening to this podcast or watching this video, that's probably what you're most interested in. So there are master's level therapists that have no training in treating anxiety disorders. They don't see the world through that lens. It's not something they're even necessarily interested in. They might not treat those things at all. They may refer you to people like me for all we know. There are others that will treat anxiety disorders, but they have theoretical views and theoretical orientations that are not necessarily cognitive behavioral in nature. That's allowed. That's allowed. And it's one of the things that makes finding professional help so difficult in our community. Because you can have somebody with a lot of letters after their name that has gone to school, got advanced degrees, did all the training and the supervision and passed exams, who still maybe has a different view of anxiety and anxiety disorders than say I might, and might not necessarily be as effective with that. This is where now the credentials almost don't matter anymore. And you have to really start to look at what is this person's theoretical approach? What is their worldview? What do they think about these type of disorders? Do they specialize in treating them? 
because anxiety disorders are strange. A lot of it is counterintuitive. It counterintuitive. It's not common sense. So it is its own thing. And there are some really great helpers at every level that I've described here who are very well-versed in the ridiculous, backwards, paradoxical, counterintuitive world of anxiety disorders. So you can find help at the master's level, the doctoral level, and from medical doctors. They're all out there. It's just hard to find, which I totally get. And there's a lot of frustration in the community over that. A lot of times it's trial and error, but keep that in mind. The, the letters after the person's name do not tell you whether or not they have specialized in or, an effective, or are effective in treating anxiety disorders. They just don't tell you, you have to ask. You just have to ask, there's really no way around that. You can look for professional affiliations. You know, a therapist who is a member of the IOCDF, for instance, probably is well-versed or at least highly interested in, in uh, obsessive compulsive disorders. Somebody who's a member of the uh, Anxiety and Depression Association of America is likely going to be interested in and therefore has been trained in treating anxiety disorders and depression. So you can use those sort of things as barometers, but don't let the training or the letters after the name, specifically the credentials or the license, influence you because you don't know until you talk to the person and look into their background. So that's kind of the, you know, the 50,000 foot view of what it looks like when you go therapist shopping or counselor shopping. Now, I will also mention, I have no expertise in this, and I, uh, that's a whole other discussion that maybe we'll have one day in this community. There are pastoral counselors as well that take a faith-based approach to this. In many states, they are also licensed to practice as mental health helpers. In a lot of instances, this is, I don't want to judge this, because one of the principles that is drilled into every therapist is the principle of autonomy. You get to pick the helper that you think is best for you because you're the best expert on you and I get to respect your decision. We would all, I hope, professionally agree with that. So if you felt that pastoral care was better for you, then you might be working with somebody who has been through divinity school, may have some additional training in mental health, but they have a slightly different training and they have a different view of the world and they may approach things in a more faith-based way. If you think that is right for you, then you do that and I get to cheer for you. So pastoral counselors are also available, but that becomes a very individual call. And I do understand if you're in pastoral care, I get it. You kind of feel like often you're left out of this conversation. You probably shouldn't be because faith can be a really strong thing in people's recoveries. But I just wanted to mention that. I would be, I would be not fair if I didn't at least mention that that's another option for you. And in terms of my experience and what I've been through as I've kind of gone down this road, I'm tired. You hear me say this all the time. People who go through the training that I'm going through, there are no time, there's no time off. So my grad program, as many do now, because we're trying to do a lot in a short amount of time, it is two and a half years where I do not get breaks. We have 10 weeks on, one week off, 10 weeks on, one week off for two and a half years straight, which means I don't have big, long you know, two month semester breaks here. I don't get the summers off. We just keep doing it. So it has been challenging when I was told, or when I was asked is when I was applying to grad schools, when I was asked, are you ready to be a full-time student? I was like, sure, I'm ready to be a full, I'll bring it on. No problem. Full-time student. Took me about two, two or three months to realize, oh, they weren't kidding full-time. So I probably spend anywhere from 18 to 25 hours a week on coursework up to this point. 
that is ending now. I'm coming to the end of coursework. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast episode in mid-November of 2023, I'm in week nine of the last term. So there's only one more week in this term where I have two content classes, textbooks and writing papers and that sort of stuff. That's done. I have one more content, we would call it a content class, which is advanced psychopathology, I'm going to take that next term, alongside my my second residency, which is on the ground training, uh, skills training on campus at my university. And uh, I'm just happy to be done with the coursework. So my last 30 weeks starting in February, and if any of you guys have heard me say that if you're in New York, and you want to work with me, you would technically and legally be able to do that starting in February, if I guess if anybody is interested, uh, you could come and see me and I could be your therapist, I would be working as an intern under supervision of the woman who owns the practice that I'm going to work at. So it's a nice large practice with a lot of different things I can get involved with. We hit it off really well. I'm excited to be doing it. Not going to talk about the name just yet because I have to talk to my supervisor and see how she wants to handle that. But she was very encouraging in that. So uh, the last 30 weeks of my program will be practical work. I'll be working with clients and I cannot wait because I'm tired of reading textbooks every day. So that's kind of that's 30 minutes on like, what does it take for your therapist to become a therapist? Or what does it take for a therapist to be a therapist? If you hung on for the whole 30 minutes, because this was interesting to you, or you just wanted to know what I was doing, or you're looking for a therapist or a helper or a counselor, and you're having a hard time, maybe you understand it a little bit more now, maybe you understand what the letters mean, maybe you understand all the training and the education that goes into it, maybe hopefully it's been helpful, maybe it's just something you're curious about. It is a topic people have asked me to talk about for a while. So I figured no time like the present. And that's kind of it. That's episode 279 of the anxious truth in the books. You know, it's over because you can hear the music, the new music. It's like a few months old now. It's not actually that new anymore. And uh, yeah, as I wrap it up, I guess I'm just going to ask you the same things that I ask you every week, which is if you are listening to this podcast on Apple podcast or Spotify, or some platform that lets you leave a rating and a review, leave a five star rating, or maybe take a second and write a review. Because if you like the podcast, that's a way for other people to find the podcast. And then I get to help more people, which is really why I talk into this microphone anyway. And of course, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, like this video, leave a comment, ask a question if you have it, I promise I will circle back at some point and try and answer your question. And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, again, subscribe to the channel, hit the notification bell. So you know, when I upload new content, that's it. The Anxious Truth is a podcast that comes out every other week. So I won't be back next week, but I will be back in two weeks with another episode. I do not know what I'm going to be talking about, but I will be here anyway. The podcast that does come out every week is called Disordered. That's the one that I do with Josh Fletcher. You can find that one at disordered.fm. Definitely go check this out. If you like this podcast, you'll love that one. That's it. Remember, any step that you can take away from fear and avoidance and toward recovery, acceptance, tolerance, floating and surrender will help you even if that's a tiny little step. So do the best you can today to turn in that direction, take a small step in that direction and see what happens. You can do it. See you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.